You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 649. Cinema should make you forget you're sitting in a theater. Roman Polanski. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Have you ever wanted to learn from a Hollywood blockbuster screenwriter or even an Oscar winner? Well, I wanted to put together a free three-day screenwriting video series taught by legendary screenwriters, David Goyer, from who wrote The Dark Knight, Nia Valdouris, who wrote The Big Fat Greek Wedding, Oscar-winning Callie Corey, who wrote Thelma and Louise, and Oscar winner Paul Haggis, who wrote Casino Royale. If you want access to this free class, head over to bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash free. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films, from predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them. The odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook and of course audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Well guys, today on the show we have an amazing filmmaker by the name of Scott Cooper. You might know his work from the Academy Award nominated film Crazy Heart, which was his first script and his first directorial debut. And from there, he's done films like Out of the Furnace, Black Mass with Johnny Depp, Hostiles with Christian Bale, Antlers, and the new film, The Pale Blue Eye with Christian Bale and a cast that is remarkable on Netflix. Scott and I had a fantastic conversation about how he got started, how he made the transition from actor to director, following your dreams, how to direct legendary actors. I mean, the casts in his film are just, I, I can't even explain it. You'll have to see it when you watch these films. But we had a great conversation. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Scott Cooper. I'd like to welcome to the show, Scott Cooper, man. How you doing, Scott? Great. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show, man. I'm a fan, man. I've been a fan for a while, man. You, you're doing some really good work, brother. Seriously, man. Thank you. Thank so, you. Con- tougher and tougher. It's man. I can- <laughs> I was just talking. I was just talking to somebody uh, a few minutes ago about how the movie business is changing so dramatically, even from when you made Crazy Heart to now. Getting somebody to the movie theater, if Avatar is having a problem, I mean, well, is Avatar what? having a problem? You know, I, I suspect I- people will go out for that film. I did. No, I, I saw it. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in, in my life. Like what Jim, what Jim did was. Yeah, no surprise. It's remarkable. But and it's doing well, but people are like, oh, it should be doing better. And there's a lot of pressure on a movie like that. But other than Avatar and Top Gun last year, it, it's tough to get people out into the theaters, man. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, maybe that was happening also a little bit before COVID, certainly accelerated during COVID. Um, Look, it's expensive to get a sitter and dinner and parking and then the price of a, of, a, of a movie. Maybe for the kind of movies that I make and some of my favorite filmmakers, perhaps the ticket prices should be lower. And then people right. will be more likely to come out because um, there really is nothing like experiencing oh, film. 
And uh, uh, in fact, the film will, will not have the same effect on you, regardless of what it is, if you're watching it uh, anywhere but in the cinema. That, there's no there's no question, my friend. But but you've lived a very interesting life in the film industry. You 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 came up uh, as an actor. So my first question, how did you and why did you want to get into this insanity that is the film industry? Well, look, it's. Uh, you don't choose your obsessions, your obsessions choose you, right? Very much so. I also spent uh, I was born and spent a lot of my formative years in this kind of artistic crown jewel of Virginia called Abingdon, Virginia, where the state theater is. Also, a lot of great uh, music comes out of that that region, the Mountain Empire, as well as a lot of arts and crafts. So the arts were always a part of my life. Uh, my father would take me to see uh, films at a young age at a local uh, college. Um, and then, you know, when you're young and you're transfixed by that, and you also have spent time as, as an actor, uh, I, Christian Bale and I had discussed this, that, that, that people who get into the film business aren't meant to have office jobs. And I think I realized oh, yeah. that at a young age. I also realized at a young age that there were actors who were a whole lot better uh, at this vocation than I, especially when you're uh, on the other side of the camera and, and, and your first film is, you know, you're, you're recording Jeff Bridges for posterity and Robert Duvall and, and Maggie Gyllenhaal and Colin Farrell. That quickly uh, um, makes you realize <laughs> that uh, there are people who do it a whole lot better than you. And then my second film was Christian Bale and Casey Affleck and Woody Harrelson oh. and Willem Dafoe and Sam Shepard and and Forrest Whitaker and Zoe Saldana. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to be an actor again. So, uh, but quite honestly, Alex, this is, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a better job than being a, a film writer, a film director. I mean, I suppose being Mick Jagger or... Uh, Bono. Bono, <laughs> Eddie Vedder, you know, someone who's a rock star, right? And, and sings to um, 80, 100,000 people on certain events. Uh, but uh, I love being able to express myself as a filmmaker. I love the people that I've met over the course of my career. Uh, I mean, look, I've been, uh, for an actor with an unremarkable career, I have been incredibly fortunate as a filmmaker. I'll just say that. You know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people are like, you know, everyone could play basketball. You know, generally, everyone could take a ball and try to sure. make a shot. But we're not all Michael Jordan or LeBron James. And, well, and that's, I think that's where you were at. <laughs> Well, sure. I mean, even Robert Duvall, uh, who was my mentor and, and uh, expressed to me and still does how much he liked me as an actor. Jeff Bridges, the same thing. But but uh, I just have much more fun doing this. And and I never even really had uh, a chance to grow as an actor. I wasn't getting the kind of challenging parts that that I now write for actors and I adore actors. Um, and performance is critical to me. And and and. And, and, and working with actors that I've always uh, uh, admired uh, and, and, you know, also being able to um, work with actors that teach me something, as Jeff certainly has, or, or Robert Duvall or, or Christian um, or, or even Johnny Depp. So um, I'm blessed, man. I, I, that's, that's just the truth. So at what point, because uh, I'm assuming as you were going down the path as an actor, uh, there, there might have been some rejection, not much, I'm sure, but some rejection. <laughs> along I don't know any actor who isn't, who isn't rejected exactly. a lot. Right. He, so at what point? He started at 12. I mean, so. Yeah, oh, yeah, God, yeah. yeah. He, had, he had a good start. That's little Spielberg uh, independent film thing he did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so Indeed. when you're going, so when you're going through the, the acting process, at what point did you say, you know what? I, I'm I'm not going to hit the All Star team as an actor. I want to jump to the other side of the like. What was the point when you decided I'm going to well, write? Crazy I, was, Heart? I was just uh, auditioning a lot and, and you know kind of coming a bridesmaid, coming in second, and uh, <laughs> and and were and and not getting the parts that made me want to become an actor in the first place. I think everybody who's you know a young actor coming up in the '90s wanted to. You know, a career, at least I did, like Sean Penn or, or De Niro, no. right? Or, yeah, or yeah. Hackman or Pacino. So when you're not getting those parts and uh, you're going up for leading men and you're not really loving them, but you have to support yourself, it just it, ultimately the rejection, it's a lot. Um, 
And I mean, look, we all get rejected, certainly in the arts. Sure. When you make things that, that, that take big risks, for sure. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But uh, I, it was really just the, the continual process of, of auditioning and films that I would have liked to have been in, not getting parts in them, um, whether it would be Thin Red Line or, or uh, Saving Private Ryan. And then I was doing a Western with uh, Duval, being directed by the great Walter Hill, who's also a mentor of mine. And, oh. and, um, and Duval said, you know, you should really write something. And of course, I ended up at, at the time I had been spending a lot of time uh, considering writing a film about Merle Haggard. Uh, he had too many ex-wives, getting the rights were difficult. So I ended up writing Crazy Heart and Duvall was the first person to read it. And, and you know, Alex, the truth is when Jeff Bridges says yes to your film, it changes your life. And that's exactly what happened to me. How, so is that how you got the, because I was going to ask, like, you're basically a first time filmmaker at this point. Yeah, you've been on oh. set for a long time, but you're yeah, but a first time writer. That's all right. Jeff, I you're saying? Jeff, I've never directed a film. I've never directed a commercial. I've never directed uh, a high school play. But I know this world and I know that by surrounding myself with great collaborators, production designers, costumers, cameramen, women, that sort of thing, that I knew that I could tell this story. And Jeff, I remember it as is, is, is though it were yesterday. And Jeff said, so this is your first time. Yeah, I said, it is. He said, well, I've had a lot of success with first-time directors, the fabulous Baker Boys being one of them. Oh, so good. He said, I'm in. And, you know, Alex, at that point, it, uh, my life was never the same. And so I have to ask you, first day on set, you're sitting, you're, you're a big man on, you're a big man on campus first day. How do you deal with not only the pressure of the first day and making sure that you make that first day, but you're looking through the lens and you see Jeff Bridges there, like, and you're directing a legend, multiple legends, by the way, in that film. Oh yeah. How, how do you deal with that as a director? Well, you deal with it by forgetting to call cut. And, and my AD, Karen and Cho, was looking at me as the scene had finished. And I'm trans, and this is the truth, and I'm transfixed. And, and she looked at me and she said, and I said, cut. And, that was it. and literally, it was like, my God. I remember that night that Jeff Bridges is, 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 is taking dialogue that I have written and taking it to places that I never expected. And that's, especially because I've written it specifically for him. That's the, the sign of a great actor. And now, uh, five films later, it's, it's happened in, uh, in every film, thankfully. So the, the one thing that's so impressive about your work, not only the writing and the directing, but the cast that you're able to attract is honestly unheard of. I mean, your second film, that list of actors, any one of them could have been the star, but a lot of them took secondary roles because they wanted to work on the project how do you attract all of these i mean and it's film after film after film after film as i'm going through your filmography i'm just like how the hell is this guy grabbing i know it's the material but like even good material doesn't attract a lot of times because of politics and schedules and yes. this or all that it, often that is the, that is the case it's difficult to because yeah. all the actors you that you're referring to everybody else wants and right. trying to fit them into a schedule is all, very often one of the most difficult things to do about making a film. But I think, look, certainly the success of, of, of Crazy Heart has helped when, when your film, your first film is nominated for three Oscars and wins a couple. That certainly changes the calculus for everybody else when they see how wonderful Jeff is and Maggie and Colin and Duvall and, and on and on and on, right? So um, that probably doesn't happen if that film doesn't have the success that it did. And then Out of the Furnace had uh, kind of like a murderer's row of actors that uh, <laughs> all of whom are, uh, you know, considered to be favorites of mine. So I think uh, once those two films um, were made, I think actors felt like, you know what, he, I, I can feel safe with Scott because that's the key is, is to, to really make an actor feel very safe, uh, safe to take big risks knows that I'm going to protect them not only on the day when we're shooting, but also in the cutting room. Um, I think 
the actors that we're talking about know that I'm more interested in films that push me into an uncomfortable space. I've spoken to all of them about the great danger is, is really doing safe work where all of the, the edges are sanded off so that a lot of people will like your film. The Academy or people who are voting bodies, right? Um, and I think they realize that uh, those don't those concerns don't really concern me. So it's all about telling a very honest story, a very authentic story, and a story that's not afraid to um, uh, not let the audience off the hook. I think um, striving for consensus is not something that I tend to do. I don't make films out of fear, and certain actors respond to that. And so another thing about working with all of these amazing actors is I know that all of them have very different processes. So as a director, I mean, as a director, how do you handle like when you have, you know, four or five different of these actors in a in a scene, you can't just yell out direction. you got to kind of go. I never do that. I I only (laughs) direction to actors that nobody hears but the actor. I'll make sure. Exactly. Mixer has turned off all mics, so nobody on set will hear the direction that I give Sam Shepard, right? Or Robert Duvall, Christian, whomever it is. Um, I think, well, I don't think I know. You have to be very specific with actors. Don't talk in the abstract. Uh, It's really about who is your character? What does the character want in the scene? What's the subtext? And again, make them feel safe, safe and free to take big risks. And every actor comes at uh, a scene differently. A.C. Affleck and Willem Dafoe couldn't be more dissimilar in terms of their right. acting styles. Yeah. And you have to, on the day, balance those styles to make sure that all ideas are welcome, but that we're all trying to serve the theme of the film. And what's the subtext of a theme? And then you, when you cast people like Willem Dafoe, who's made, I don't know, probably 100 films, or Christian, who's made 50, Duvall, who's made 100, I mean, it's like, uh, and I've said this before, it's almost as though you're like a jockey at the, what I would imagine one to be at the Kentucky Derby. You're on the best. And it's a little bit of guidance here, a little bit of guidance there. Show them the whip, you know, and then let them run the rest of the work. I mean, that's the key is like not getting in their way and helping. And as Duvall would always say to me, the key to being a successful director of performances, which is what I hope I am is it knowing how to help an actor when he or she is in trouble. Now, with Crazy Heart, you, I mean, again, you, you're a very rare example of your first film being nominated for three Oscars. It doesn't happen quite very often. How did you... Well, there's a lot hand- of danger in that, man. I got to be honest. Yeah, I, that, that was my question. How did you handle the pre- not only the pressure, the accolades, the you're the greatest, the ego trips... Uh, being in the center of that hurricane, and then after winning, you know, the, the film winning a few, a couple Oscars, and how the town treated you, because Hollywood's a dangerous place, oh, and yeah. and but you already had been in town a bit as an actor, so you've seen a few things that I'm at home. Oh yeah. So how did you deal with it, man? Well, by making a film that was the complete polar opposite. Um, <laughs> Uh, which was out of the furnace, which, you know, I hoped to make as an elegiac crime film, right? That that would uh, remind me of a smaller version of The Deer Hunter, right? And you feel like, okay, well, you're definitely not going to sand off the edges. You're not going to strive for consensus. You're going to make a film that uh, is as hard-hitting as uh, the people experience who actually live there, right? And fortunately, that's where Christian and I met uh, in Braddock, Pennsylvania, Mayor John Fetterman, who's now the um, uh, senator from Pennsylvania, right? Mm -hmm. And I know how tough uh, it was to live in a place like that. Probably still is in Braddock. So uh, if you're being authentic to telling the story, that's really the key. And you don't worry about what others will say. Um, You don't worry about what Academy voters will say. You don't worry about what critics say. Because if you look at most of Stanley Kubrick's films, they were... Uh, not well received when they first came out. All of them almost. I think all of them unanimously were not well received. And uh, time is what settles the score, right? So often you see movies that go on to win Oscars and receive acclaim and you watch them two, three, four years later, if not sooner, and you you realize that they don't really hold up, 
right? So if you're if you're playing, and these actors that I work with know this, you're playing for the long game. And really, what what means something to me is that when when I hear from people who are also filmmakers. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Who have uh, responded to me, whether it's uh, Bogdanovich with Crazy Heart, whether it was Michael Cimino calling me or, or um, uh, William Friedkin after seeing Out of the Furnace, you know, Michael Mann, who is, uh, has been very kind to me, Mike Nichols, like all of these people that I admire who really who reach out to you after seeing your films and, 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 and continue, uh, you know, applaud you to continue to push. How, how do you, as a, I mean, as a filmmaker, there's so many traps with that because you, you know, when you're getting your, you're basically the people you admire calling you, telling you that you're great and to keep going, the ego has to fall into, how do you keep that in place? Cause that's a problem when you have well, so much danger to art. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. and you have to, uh, of course, my wife would disagree when saying that I feel like I have no ego. She says I change this. Um, Wives do that. <laughs> yes, they do. But, but ultimately, it's really about serving the story, about telling the stories that um, uh, that you want to tell. And you and look, Alex, the, what you try to do is is try to keep ego out of any decisions that you make, mm-hmm. um, which is often. Uh, very difficult for artists to do, whether you're a painter or whether you're a musician, you know, whether you're a filmmaker. Jeff Bridges said to me, I don't care what happens to a movie when it comes out in terms of winning awards, that, that the reward is, is in the journey for him. And it's the experience. And the more movies that I make, that's the truth. It's when you and a group of gifted collaborators are, are all striving for the same goal. And I think that's really important i think also i have tended to try to figure out how to how to tell the truth about how tragic and unfair life is without losing hope you know most narratives lie to the audience about how life works out and uh, shocking yes and i (laughs) hollywood hollywood does that no you're kidding me (laughs) yes so that's um, that's their bread and butter (laughs) it is yeah so for me really it's 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 about um you know, working through the difficulties in my life by dressing them through art. Um, fair enough. Fair enough. Now, yeah. the one the one thing that's not spoken of a lot about in in the filmmaking space, especially in the film schools and for young filmmakers coming up, is the politics of the set. As mm-hmm. a first time director, you know, you have collaborators who you might have chosen wrong, you know, incorrectly that you didn't align with what you wanted or or try to enforce their vision on top of the director. Have you dealt with any of that? And if you have, how did you overcome it? No, frank, frankly, I haven't um, because I, I didn't think so. I, having not gone to film school, actually, all six of my films have been incredibly harmonious. Okay. Now I work with the same crew largely over and over because we have a shorthand. And, you know, my films are not inexpensive and every moment counts and every minute is, you know, uh, you can just hear the dollar signs. I think it was Kubrick again who who said that actually prepping is much easier. Editing is you're much more relaxed. But when you're shooting, it's like you're in this cauldron of fire because you have to make so many decisions every day and you're dealing with production designers, actors, cameramen and women, sound. Um, everything is coming together at once. So the key is how do you hire people that see the world as you do, who will make push you to become a better filmmaker? Mm. Because I didn't go to film school, and all of my film school is is reading as much as I can about film directors, watching their movies over and over and over with the sound off, how do they move the camera, uh, most importantly, when they don't move it, um, how they use composition and mise-en-scene and lighting, staging to help tell a story um, and, and which is more and more difficult because we're living in the most impatient of ages because of this, mm-hmm. right? And because we're getting our instant, uh, uh, in social media, we're getting instant gratification constantly and that we, we're no longer patient. And you have, to, you have to really resist that when you're making a film because you want to put an audience today in front of 2001, oh. I have no idea what that was, Barry Lyndon, um, 
the Godfather even, and they'd never heard of these actors or seen it, people would find it painfully slow, boring. And if they were watching at home, they would turn it off. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And you have to resist that. You have to say, okay, well, this is the story I'm telling. People might find it to be a slow burn. But I've said this before, making, you know, experiencing a film in a cinema is not like getting an enema. You don't want to have wanted to get over as fast as possible. Luxuriate in Stanley Kubrick's world or in Jane Campion's world or countless other filmmakers that have inspired me for years. Right. That's the key. So so it's really about trying to eschew any ego, hire people that see the world as you do, know their work incredibly well take meetings with them, and then you will just learn to push one another. I mean, even when you work with trusted collaborators, there will be moments on set where there is sturm und drang. And as the director, and as the writer, and as the producer, you have to be able to solve those issues. You also have to be open and realize that all ideas are welcome. And that is the key. You can't only just say, it's my way. You have to have a very strong vision, but it's clear that there are people that you hire who will bring ideas to make you not only a better filmmaker, but make the film better. Now, how do you approach the writing process? Because your, 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 your work is so character driven. Um, how do you, how do you just deal well, with from, the, from, the writing from, process well, in general? Quite, quite frankly. And, and I, I work very long stretches um, from early in the morning um, through lunch, take a break and then get back at it. Because I do kind of what Coppola did, which is like this vomit draft, where you don't go back and edit. You literally write the story from page one to page 120, however long it is, without going back to edit. And reading it, and it very often will be terrible, to see if, if this is a story that you would want to race out to see on Friday night. That's my litmus test. And before I became a writer, I would study Robert Towns' work. I would study Friedkin's work. I would study... Uh, the network, Patty Shiesta, whoever, and I, would, and I would try to understand, these are all people who write characters. How is it that they're telling the story largely through subtext and they're telling it visually, they're telling it with spare dialogue, all these sort of things that you just keep writing. Writing is rewriting. And, and eventually you come to a place where you feel like you can share a screenplay with Robert Duvall, who was the first one to, to read Crazy Heart. Or now, the person who reads all my scripts, whether he's in them or not, is Christian Bale, right? Christian's been making films since he's 12. He'll tell you if a story of a character is working quickly. And it's great to have, and I'm very fortunate to have those kind of trusted collaborators who, who read my things and uh, help guide me. Because so often, and even in the editorial process, you get very snowballing, and you can't quite see, think things are great. But then there are other people who will come in and say, mm, this didn't quite land for me, this isn't working, this is overstated, this is understated. So all of those sort of things, I'm just getting a text from my pal Casey Affleck right now, speaking <laughs> of Casey. <laughs> hey, Casey. So Alex, that's really it, man. It's, it's about um, how do you use other people's ideas, look at, I mean, I can't say enough to young filmmakers, read great screenplays. See not only what a writer is trying to express, but what they aren't. So much is, is left to the unspoken. And that's <laughs> where you'll make a real connection with the audience. And I tell people all the time, first-time filmmakers, um, tell the truth. Write stories that are close to you that you know and personalize everything. Because then if you do it, your theme will become universal and it will speak to most everybody. Because we're all suffering, right? And we all, if you, if you deign to make the kind of films that I do and you want to move people or you want to um, uh, challenge people, um, a great filmmaker who shall uh, remain unnamed once said to me, and this guy's one of the greats, he says, Scott, if everybody likes your film, it's likely not very good. <laughs> very true. Now, do you outline at all? If I'm adapting something, I do. Okay. If I'm writing an original, funny because and I use Kubrick again because I've read everything he's ever said. Right? Oh, me, me too, my friend. Me too. I watched all of his interviews. And he would never uh, direct an original screenplay. It always has to be based on existing material because he says you can sit down in one sitting 
and tell, this is a story that I want to tell. This is what I want to spend the next five years of my life. Outlining can be really quite helpful. Um, if, if, if there's existing, the pale blue eye, very sprawling novel. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, more characters than I could, uh, that I could or should explore in a two hour time frame. Different if you're making a limited series. Um, something that's longer, more sprawling, you should certainly outline. But an original screenplay, it helps, it helps to give you guideposts as you're writing for sure. But certainly if you're adapting something and it's really all about um, finding the essence of the novel or nonfiction piece, or uh, uh, magazine article, whatever it is you're adapting, podcast. And then it helps to outline that for sure. But there's also something very freeing about not knowing where a narrative is going. You have a, a kernel of an idea, like out of the furnace, and off I went and just wrote. And I was doing press for Crazy Heart. I was in Pittsburgh, drove over to Braddock, Pennsylvania, wrote very specifically for all of these locations, took images, and out of that came the narrative. So um, I do both. Um, I've just just uh, adapted something that, that uh, I hope to make, certainly my next film or, or the film after that. And I didn't uh, outline. I'd read the novel four or five times. William Goldman would certainly, once he realized he was going to read something, read it two or three times. Did I like it the second time as much as the first? What are the themes? Who are the characters that I'm going to excise? Who the characters I'm going to focus on? That's that's the piece that I just uh, that I've just adapted. That um, when you have someone who's given you a great piece of, of uh, source material, like for instance Lewis Bayard and the Pale Blue Eye, um, you can take that and 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 if the author knows and understands that a film is very different than a book, you can just use a seed and off you go. So it really is is project continuing whether I outline or not. I don't do it now, always. Now, as directors, there's always that day on set where we feel like the entire world's coming crashing down around you. The sun's you, oh, every, day. The, yeah. every, every, every day there is that. But there's that one day that's like, oh, I don't think we're going to make it. That day that you're like, holy cow. What was that day on any of your projects and how did you overcome it? Well, you never have enough time. Ever. <laughs> Honestly, even though you've got, man, I've got 55 days to shoot this. Jesus, I had 24 for Crazy Heart. And then every day, by the time you're finished, you, you, there are no easy days on a film set. Um, one of them, of course, is, is if you have to vacate a, lo a location because it's a restaurant that you've rented oh, yeah. out or someone's house and they're ready to move back in. Uh, or it can be because you have um, monsoonal rains coming, and that would have been in um, uh, Hostiles, where I was shooting the sequence towards the end of the film where Rory Cochran's character, before he um, um, before he meets his maker, and it's pouring rain, and it's I think it's probably 38 degrees. Uh, it's going to be snowing later. Rory is, is dressed only in a very thin shirt, but we hadn't quite gotten the scene, but I could tell that he was, he was very affected by the weather and was starting to become hypothermic. I'm not a doctor, I'm supposing. I can see how it was affecting him. Um, and these monsoonal rains up in the Continental Divide, uh, you just can't control, but it was giving me everything that I wanted in the scene. So you're trying to balance somebody's health with also trying to know that you have to vacate a location uh, vacate a location and and trying to balance the scene. But and I would go to Rory. I would say, listen, I think we have this. Um, but, but I'm also very concerned that that you are experiencing something now that you shouldn't be. No, Scott, I haven't quite gotten it. This is what Rory would say. We're going to keep pushing. And then you're sitting behind the monitor next to the lens, and you're thinking, okay, man, I've got to stop him because he'll keep going until. Until he falls down, because he's that kind of actor. He's so great, Rory Cotton, mm -hmm. one of the great actors I've worked with. Um, so scenes like that that really uh, uh, pressure you, or when 
the monsoonal rains and rattlesnakes have come out of the ground. They're everywhere, but you're still shooting, you know, those sort of things. Um, so you just have to, it's all about really balancing. And, you know, if you're eight, 10,000 feet above sea level and oxygen is very difficult for people. Oh, yeah. It's always trying to balance those sort of things. Or shooting the pale blue eye and, and it's eight below zero. And um, those are long days. And you want to make certain that the crew are well taken care of. But if you're the writer, director, producer, and you're in a location and you're focused on that, and then but you're also concerned about the crew's uh, uh, well-being, you know, those are things that you really uh, have to juggle as a filmmaker that they certainly don't teach you in film school. Having not gone to film school, I, I don't know for sure, but I suspect they don't. Rattlesnakes, bears, elevation. I, mi- I miss the rattlesnake, uh, bears, uh, monsoon <laughs> exactly. uh, class. Uh, right. When I went, at least it wasn't there. It wasn't in the curriculum when I went. So, <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe there should be a class on that. There I mean, if someone's thing. listening at USC, the hell at USC. <laughs> USC Film School should have that exactly. Yeah. Now, um, I've talked to so many writers that it, it, when they are when they're writing, and it happens. It's happened to me. It happens to every writer. I think is when you're writing, you you're almost channeling you're almost like oh, it's something flowing through you to the point to the point where after you're done you look at it and you go holy crap who wrote this this is good <laughs> almost every time and quite frankly it comes from a very deep subconscious place i mean you're very conscious as you're writing it but you're not questioning it my wife asks me that all the time when she when she reads something she's like jesus where did this come from and you can't quite really understand it and and quite frankly the more films you make and the more experience you become not only as a, as a film director but as a film writer the more difficult it gets about saying less and not over imparting to the audience and trying to give them enough uh information uh to keep them satisfied but not too much information and that's where you become more conscious about it but generally as you're writing it's if if you're in that flow and that stream of consciousness and it's coming from a place don't question it and don't stop so it seems like it's, you know, we, we could call it the other side, the ether, wherever ideas come from. I think Spielberg talked about it. And um, I think Prince and Michael Jackson talked about it as well, like where ideas come from. And I think Spielberg said in an interview where he's like, if an idea comes to me, I know that if I don't act on it. In a week or two, I'll hear that Marty got it or someone else got it because the idea needs to be birthed into the world and they chose you first. But if you don't move. They'll move on to the next one. <laughs> Look, and those are our three geniuses that you just mentioned. So I wouldn't question any of that. But I think he's probably uh, right. Um, and I try not to I try not to question anything, honestly, um, in terms of where it comes from, because when you make the kind of films that that I make, you you have to understand that um, no two people see the same film. Right. And which is why I think it's so, frankly, absurd to rank art as we do in America. What's the best? You know, who do you who do you think is a better uh, painter, Cy Twombly or Jackson Pollock? You're going to have varying uh, uh, responses, right? From a number of people uh, when you present them with that. Or who's better, Miles or, or Coltrane? Right, those were things. So the fact that we that we rank art is something that for a whole other discussion, Alex. But you can't really be concerned with any of that when you are making um, a film, or when, when you're writing. Well, and, so and where things come from? Don't. So, how are people going to receive this? Oh God, no! You can't think that. No, you have to just let it come out. Yes. And 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 that's where I think a lot of writers' the work will be generic and for, for easily forgotten. One thing I've noticed with your work is it seems that there hasn't been a drop off, meaning that the level that you were able to set, the the bar you were able to set with Crazy Heart, you've been able to keep that film after film on the level of the writing and the directing. Because to be honest, and I know you know this as well, there are directors who pop, but then they overthink or they and then and you could start seeing it in their work their, their work starts to drop off unfortunately do you think when you wrote crazy heart where you were basically there was no pressure to write crazy heart no none no nobody no no so it was such a freeing experience that you let go 
Yes. Do you are you able to continuously do that with your work or do you start to do you get in your own way and stop that flow sometimes from happening? Well, both um, only because uh, my work. Um, explores the. Darker corners of the human psyche. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And since Crazy Heart have gotten progressively darker, um, although Pale Blue Eye is certainly it's not that. I mean, that's much more accessible. Um, so you try to guard against that only because you know that your films affect people in ways. I mean, I've been to countless screenings over the last six movies where people have come out of my films as though they were just, you know, festivals, screenings, as though they were just hit by a two by four. And uh, you can tell that they were deeply moved or deeply uh, angered or upset, whatever it is. Um, so, you, you know, you're sometimes mindful of that. Like, God, you know, I, and I never try to make the same film twice. You make a music film, you make a gangster movie, a Western horror, <laughs> horror family, horror trauma with antlers and now this. Um, so I never try to repeat myself, but I also never let the audience off the hook. And that is is something that you sometimes have to be reminded of because, look, we want, I mean, movies are an expensive endeavor and their investors <laughs> want their movies at least to break even, but they want to make money. You know, it, it is cliche as it is. It is show business and not show art. So I've been lucky to make the kind of films that I make. Um, and quite frankly, I think actors and, and other directors, whether they're my contemporaries or people that I have long, long admired and became a filmmaker because of them, have embraced my work in ways that the public just isn't aware of. And that really keeps you going. Um, Walter Hill. Got an email from Walter today telling me how much that he loved Pale Blue Eye and what he thinks of my same the reason I bring it up is because you just mentioned it and how he's seen my career um, ascend. And, and it, you know, I think people are, are thankful uh, when directors um, really respect the audience and want to give them something that's challenging and something that's different. And most importantly, something that, and I do believe this will stand the test of time. Let me, I got to ask you this question because I mean, we, you and I are both of a generation that remembers all those great filmmakers you talked about, all those great movies uh, from the seventies and the sixties and the, and the eighties. And I feel like those kind of filmmakers, and uh, to be honest, filmmakers like yourself are an endangered species right now because of what's happening in the, in the business. There's, it's, it's just getting crazier and crazier. And, And if it wasn't for, people like netflix you know a pale blue eye which is your new movie oh, that's not getting a theatrical release today that's not being made today it just it wouldn't get made unless it was with a streamer who wants to do that kind of work uh because the studios honestly if scorsese's having a problem getting his films made yeah. <laughs> and he has to go to netflix to get irish we're all in trouble so apple's well, making his new film Right, exactly. So what do you think about the, the, the future of where we're going, man? Because well, as a film lover, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a problem. The new generation I, coming up, is, it's, it's, it's a problem. I, I mean, Christian and I just spoke about it today because The Pale Blue Eye is debuting on Netflix. It's been in theaters for the last two weeks. I mean, I'm eternally grateful that Netflix have allowed this film, should people want to see it in the big screen experience, to debut in the top markets all over the world. You've got two weeks to see it in a theater if you want to see that. And should you want to wait until it comes to your house, which is what most people will do to your home theater, that's how the majority of people will see my film, then that's how they're going to see it. I am eternally grateful that Netflix, Apple, um, Amazon are making films that the legacy studios no longer want to make because those are the films that that the reason I became a filmmaker and the movies that still excite me. I mean, I've been asked to do um, major uh, superhero films or the kind of films that that guarantee a, um, an audience. I've been offered those many times and have, uh, as of yet, uh, elected not to do them because I want to tell these stories. Uh, 
stories that make me want to race out to see a film on a Friday night. It, it's getting tougher and tougher because if you look at this fall and some of my pals, their films that debuted in cinemas, just no one came to see them. And these are excellent films and right. um, made with the highest uh, uh, craftsmanship and great performances. And it, it's, it's a bit terrifying and we're, you know, we're heading into uh, potentially um, uh, strike year. We yeah. oh, God, that's right. potentially could be facing, um, could be facing, uh, you know, economic headwinds. So all of these things make it more difficult for people to get their films made. Certainly more difficult than, than it does for Scorsese or, 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 uh, or those lands, most of myself, whoever are making, you know, challenging adult, uh, dramas. Um, but still it's never easy. And, and I fear that, uh, people until we're really beyond COVID, which we certainly are not, um, I think an older audience won't come back. And I think ticket prices probably going to have to come down to, to entice people to come back to the cinemas. But I can assure you, because if you look around the world, there's such great cinema being made. Yes. Year in and, out. and those are the films that I most respond to, quite frankly, are international filmmakers um, who've inspired me uh, a great deal over the last 15, 20 years. Um, they're still getting their films made. They're, uh, they're, they're home countries sometimes help subsidizing which we don't quite have here um uh, it is getting tougher but i but i then every year movies come out and you think okay great this is why we love cinema it's just, just getting harder and harder alex and um yeah here's what i'll tell any filmmaker you should make the film you're about to make as though it's your last yeah and and it's you know, a lot of times, well, first of all, I think what you said about the foreign films, we're getting access to them so much easier now because of streaming oh, services. Yes. They're just coming in and something like Parasite winning the Oscar and things like that. That would have never happened oh, no. no, 10, 20 years ago. It just wouldn't have happened. So that's a good, those are good signs. But the younger generation of filmmakers coming out, because I, I teach these filmmakers, I, they, they listen to me all the time and, and they watch the show and it's it I'm, i and i see them at festivals and i see them at events and i talk to them and it's just it's so much harder now to get stuff off the ground than it was before and especially to tell the kind of challenging stories uh that you're telling and and, and i mean any of spoops uh, kubrick's films any of them try to oh. release them today oh. any kubrick film today release it, it, it it's not it's not even possible can you imagine the sh Clockwork Orange I watched the other day. Oh, Just the first yeah. the, the first 20 minutes of that, I'm like, you can't release that today. It's just not in today's environment. You can't release a film like that. Oh, or Taxi Driver. No. Taxi oh, Driver. Yeah. Are you kidding? It's well, are your students dispirited from, from following their passions? Or do they just no. realize it's going to be a tougher uh, road to hope? Well, this is the thing, man. I, I, I think that filmmakers, the younger film generation coming up, are still stuck a lot of times in the glory days, which in many ways for our generation was the 90s, which was the independent film movement, oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, Sundance yeah. movement where, and I've spoken to a lot of these filmmakers, you know, the Ed Burns and the Robert Rodriguez's and the Tarantinos, these guys that, that they were legendary stories of what happened in the 90s. And they're stuck into that world to like think that that's the path. And I keep yelling from the top of the, of the mountain, this is not the way anymore, guys. You can't. I talked to Ed Burns about Brothers McMullen. That movie wouldn't make it today. Clerks wouldn't make it today. El Mariachi wouldn't make it today. Slacker wouldn't make it today. It's uh -huh. these, and and they think that that's the path. So then I have to kind of break that illusion a bit, and then they go, "Well, what do I do?" And I go, "You, the the game is so different now, and it's so much easier to make a film, but it's so much harder to get it seen." Because when, when we were coming up, it was impossible to make a film. It cost, you needed 35, you needed 16 if you were lucky, and then you had to really understand technology. You really need to understand lighting. Now, anyone can make, you know, I had Sean Baker on a few a couple times on my show, what he did with uh, Tangerine, with the iPhone, and and cameras are so cheap and things look so good. Sean, Sean's doing it the right way. Sean, no, Sean is amazing. And he's, 
you know, Red Rocket. I love Red Rocket. I saw I saw that in the theater. Shot that sixteen. It was yeah. great. But that, but that, it, it's it's. I think people are starting to get disheartened a bit. And I think what where our generation looked into the nineties, let's say, for for hope. And of course, obviously, the seventies and the eighties and the sixties and the great filmmakers and the legends. We were we kind of like if you remember when that when everybody wanted to grow up to be a rock star, right? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Then in the 90s, everybody wanted to grow up to be a director because Quentin made it so cool and Robert made it so cool. And it was just like everybody. Yeah, yeah, Soderbergh, everybody was, was so cool to be a director. Now, the younger generation didn't, they want to be content creators. Wow. They want to be YouTubers to tell their stories. And they're able to monetize there much faster than they could with film. And then don't get me started about film distribution, which is a whole other world that I've, I'm, I'm deep into as far as independent film distribution. So it's just a difficult, it's so hard, man. At certain levels, yeah, you, you're going to get the Ryan Kuglers that come out of film school and, 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 and make some great films and your film like crazy hard. These, but these are anomalies. I mean, yeah. your story is an anomaly, right? I, so I, I don't know. I don't know where this conversation is going, but I just love to hear your thoughts on where you think from your point of view. Well, now you make me just crawl up in the fetal position. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Alex. I don't mean, I don't no, mean, we have, look, Guillermo uh, del Toro, who, who right. my film Antlers, and yes. uh, who's a great pal of mine, oh. said to me, he said, look, you know, if, if COVID remind us of anything, we know that we need food, we need shelter, we need medicines, and we need stories. And we will always need films. We will always need long-form television, whether it's content, as you mentioned, uh, on YouTube, whether it's uh, short films. People need stories. We always have, ever since when we go back to cavemen, right? Oh, of course, of course. So, uh, and cave art in uh, caves in France and elsewhere. So that I'm not concerned about. What I am concerned about are the economic headwinds, the difficulty to entry for the, market, uh, the marketplace, the marketplace and distribution. And and my hope is that, that and I don't know that we're on the tail end of, of COVID. Uh, uh, yeah. Hopefully. Mine still have it now, and it's, and, and it's as bad as ever, as intense as ever. Um, hopefully, once people come back, the older audience come back to cinemas, perhaps it will get easier. But I don't know that film going is the first choice for 18 to 34-year-olds. I have kids. They love going to the cinema. Mm-hmm. They try to go as often as possible, but it's also because I'm a film director. And of course. And their friends love to go to the movies. But they're also on TikTok all the time. And they're on uh, Instagram. And they're on uh, YouTube. phones. YouTube. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, there are many things that are challenging our time for movies. Because it's, it's, it's expensive and time-consuming to get to the, to the cinema. I hope that that changes. I hope that, that, that it will shake out with COVID and the Lega Studios now realize that making films like the films that I make are more important. But it's really all about economics. It always has been. But, you know, it, it has. But I think that <clears throat> the studios are now run by corporations and by boards oh, of directors. Oh, yeah. But before they were run by filmmakers. Yes. You know, you know, I mean, arguably Iger, Bob Iger is probably the only guy who understands and, and look what he's done with Disney, for God's sake. Yeah, thank God he's back. And thank God he's back. He understood, he understands storytelling, understands filmmaking. But I remember growing up, I worked at a video store and we would have movies like What About Bob? You know, and these smaller films. Shot in Virginia, my home. Right, state. exactly. So these smaller films with big stars at, at nice budgets, you know, 10 million, 15 million, that there was yeah. a shot. They'd do 10 of those and one would pop. And the other ones would do okay, and then maybe two or three would bomb, but they will all work together. And there was more content, more ideas, more things. And that's why we're going back to those times to mine those ideas because everyone's terrified of doing that kind of stuff right now, where Netflix and Amazon and Apple aren't scared to do that because their business model is different. That's right. And I suspect that uh, there are a lot of different streaming platforms, which are expensive for people to have six or eight of them. 
<laughs> I imagine that there will be fewer going forward, and but those will still be uh, uh, providing great content. And that's, of course, Netflix and Apple and, and Amazon, uh, Disney Plus, who, who are well capitalized. But then I think you'll probably also see some consolidation. And uh, mm -hmm. the less buyers, the worse off for all of us. Agreed, my friend. Agreed. That's without Thank question. God we have companies like Sony Pictures Classics and my good friends at Fox Searchlight who Fox, yeah, yeah. a couple of my films, and they and they really are, are run by filmmakers. Who care <laughs> God, about films uh, year in and year out. Uh, they're uh, great supporters of films. A twenty four, yeah, A twenty four, and 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 uh, and now and of course Netflix. Netflix has a whole division that will allow you to make Roma or Bardo, or uh, Power of the Dog, or The Pale Blue Eye, or on and on and on. And hopefully we can continue to make that because there's so many young filmmakers who are listening to this podcast or your podcast in general who have stories to tell and should be Absolutely. told. Absolutely. And, and, and if you have that burning desire that says, this is the only thing I can do with my life, which is ultimately what I said, then you'll find a way to succeed and tell your story. A Amen, brother. I think that's the, that's the key. Is it's not, and and maybe you should, maybe you can back me up on this. It's always not about the talent, um, but perseverance. Because there's a lot of people. Oh yeah. Who are who are around? They're like, man, they're they're not the best, but they just stuck it out. They just survived. Oh yeah, we all know examples of that for sure. Yeah, yeah. and and that's something they don't teach you in film school. It's like I don't yeah. look Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael Jackson. Michael Jordan got cut. From his high school team, talent wasn't enough. Talent wasn't. You had to go and hustle and work and build it up and keep going. And and that's something that I try to I try to yell from the top of the mountain here as well. Yeah, yeah, show. yeah. Hey, if you have my pal Adam Sandler on to talk about hustle, please, I would love to have Adam on the show. Please call him up and let him know because I love hustle. This is the show he should be on. I, I don't know it. why he didn't come on Hustle. I love, by the way, love that movie. Love. Yeah, that. He's, he's, a, he's a great, great man, and he's great in the film and. And he's uh, and, and if you want to talk about Adam and people always ask, like, how come Adam keeps getting all these this deal on, on Netflix? And I always say, like, the reason why is because when you're on Friday night with your wife sitting on Netflix and you're scanning all those thumbnails and you see Adam's face, you go, oh, I know what I'm going to get. And I'm going to get something oh, that's going to be he delivers, man. And he's either going to be super funny or when he gets into his dramatic stuff, which he's so underrated in his dramatic oh, acting. He's a great person. Um, he and he just he gets it and he understands his brand. He understands what he's doing. And man, he other unlike any other actor, I really he's he's done such amazing stuff over the years. Oh, uh, whether you like his films or yeah, whatever you like, I don't care if people like his films or not. Everyone has their opinions on stuff, but you can't deny what the man has done and continues oh, to do. And keeps knocking it out of the park. Um, I loved Hustle. I loved Hustle. So I can't say enough about that. Good um, I love the guy. So let's talk about the pale blue eye. Uh, you know, with Netflix, uh, I you know it looks beautiful, dude. It's stunning. Okay. It is stunningly shot. It almost reminded. It almost has a a Sleepy Hollow vibe to it, as far as yeah, the, I guess it, yeah, that's right. That that has that kind of texture. Well, uh, that color aesthetic for sure. Yeah, it, it's it's stunning, man. So tell me how that that whole thing came to be and. And how you were able, I mean, I'm assuming you gave the script to Christian. Christian said yes, and then Netflix said yes. Yeah, yeah. He read it probably, uh, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago after we did Out of the Furnace. And wow. he loved it then, but he was too young to, to, to play uh, Augustus Landor, the world-weary detective. He was too old to play um, Edgar Allan Poe, but we'd always talked about it. I mean, I've written a lot of things that, that I think he and I will make at some point. It's all about, as we discussed early on in the podcast, all about timing, availability, what we feel like making. Um, but we both were interested in what drives someone to madness, how much pressure has to build before they explode in violence, you know, what causes morality and decency to erode and otherwise decent people, right? Real horrors seldom have easy explanations. And that's what we wanted to uh, explore with the story. In terms of the aesthetic, it was a, it was a brutal shoot, as, as oh, most of mine are. My, my wife thinks I'm a masochist, but. Like I said, it was incredibly cold. Those bracing winds coming uh, from the northeast are just uh, almost Revenant style. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was tough. Um, but that was all in serving kind of this um, gothic aesthetic, and and really trying to serve as a, a an Edgar Allan Poe origin story. That the two hours that take place in this film motivate Poe to become the writer that we know and love, the writer of the macabre, the, the man who bequeathed to us detective and horror fiction. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, the man who writes about tragedy and death and the satanic and the occult and where life ends and death begins, all of those sort of things that kind of course through this narrative. And I thought that, again, in, in trying not to do safe work, uh, Christian stood on that ledge with me and, and we both took the, took the leap and were, uh, yeah. So once I uh, attached Christian, uh, my agents at Creative Artists took the uh, screenplay out and, and we got a lot of bids from the legacy studios, a lot of bids from streamers, uh, but Netflix um, made us an offer that we thought was too good to pass up in terms of having both a theatrical experience and um, streaming, my first platform experience. And also, uh, quite frankly, their, their, their ranks are filled with great filmmakers who really understood the film and allowed me to make the film that you see. Um, I hope that uh, people find it, you know, starting today on the, on the streamer and, and allow people uh, coming behind me to make films that are uh, similarly um, uh, difficult to make in this marketplace. And you know, you've worked with Christian so many times now. I mean, you guys are you know, you're the Scorsese to his De Niro at this point, or to, to his DiCaprio at this point. Uh, Christian is one of the greatest actors of his generation. There's no 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 question, one of the greatest actors of his generation, and. His physical transformations that he's done over the course of his life, which I know has oh, harmed his health. Oh, it has harmed his health. They're, they're unrivaled. There's nobody who's ever done anything at that again and again and again and again. From the machinist to Batman, you're like, what, how, how, could yeah. how? Um, it, it's really remarkable. What is the what is the biggest lesson you've learned working with an actor like him? No detail is too small. And always striving for truth always striving for excellence and realizing that we can always do better and you need people like that to make you a better filmmaker i've spoken about it publicly christian my closest pal my closest collaborator he's like a brother to me and uh and i'm thankful that that as a director i've had someone who has served as as a muse for for the stories that i want to tell and um people continue to come out and see our work. It won't be the end of it, our collaboration for sure. <laughs> but he pushes me to be the best filmmaker I can be. And, and, and quite frankly, I admire him more off the set than I do on. He's, he's an incredibly devoted father and husband, and you never see Christian in the public eye. You never see him on talk shows because he always thinks the less the public knows about him, the more easily they will believe him as Batman or Dick Cheney or Augustus Landor in the pale blue eyes. Yeah, you not thinking about that. where he pumps his gas, who he's partying with, where he went for holiday. You never see it. Yeah, it's almost a Daniel Day-Lewis vibe, too, because when Daniel did, he you just, would, you don't, nothing. You didn't knew nothing about it. He just show up three, ten years later and go, I'll do a part now. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that way you're able to be transported with the filmmakers to a world where you never even question. Hold on, is he dating? You're right. You're, you're right. He's brilliant. He's brilliant on multiple levels, without question. Yes. And, and now I have a, I continue to write for him. Now I have a few questions to ask all my guests. What yes. advice would you give a filmmaker or screenwriter trying to break into the business today? Tell personal stories. Tell personal stories that you know uh, will connect in a very universal way to people in America, people in Iran, people in Afghanistan, people in Ukraine. All people need stories to help make personal films. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? And it's difficult, but patience and to believe in yourself and to believe in your stories and to believe that 
you'll ultimately cultivate your talent in such a way that it will be undeniable that people will want to work with you. But it all takes patience and experience. And the toughest question of all, three of your favorite films of all time. Ooh, I would say, um, even though I have uh, yet to make a documentary, I love them. I would say uh, Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA. Mm -hmm. That's a great movie. Something that really has influenced me. The Maisel Brothers Salesman mm -hmm. is another. Um, I would say Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai. Nice. Very nice. Very nice list, my friend. Scott, brother, I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, and sharing all your knowledge and experience with the audience, man. And please continue making pleasure, movies, man. Great questions, man. Keep it up. And please, people, I, in, in all seriousness, don't lose faith. you got to tell stories. I want to thank Scott so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey and dropping his knowledge bombs on the tribe today. Thank you so much, Scott. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to watch his new film, The Pale Blue Eye, on Netflix, head over to the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 649. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe, and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.